Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is... Emiliano Trere, and uh, I'm a reader in data agency and media colleges at uh, JOMEC, which is the um, School of Journalism, Media and Culture at Cardiff University in Wales. And um, I'm also the co-director of the Data Justice Lab that is based at the same institution uh, and a different institution as well. It's a kind of a co um, um, a shared space of, of research. And I'm also the director of international development at JOMEC. And uh, yeah, I'm Italian and I'm battling a cold. So if you, this is, this is my voice, but uh, a bit, a bit uh, biased and distorted by the cold that I'm battling as uh, uh, with many other people in Cardiff, to be honest, because we have had a kind of, I don't know, a, a really bad cold uh, uh, week. But here I am, and I'm really happy to be sharing this space with Toby. Thanks a lot for the invitation. Oh, thank you, Emiliano. It's a great honor that you're here. And I think your impersonation of Lauren Bacall after 50 years of smoking two packets of cigarettes today is excellent, even if it's been brought on by <laughs> a nasty virus. So it's, it's great to be with you. <laughs> Emiliano, before anything else, Maybe 20% of listeners are in Britain. So for those who are not, could you explain what reader means in the parlance of British academia? Uh, yeah, absolutely. That's a good, that's a good uh, question, kind of prompt, I'd say. Reader is this kind of weird title that survives in some university, especially in the UK, um, uh, there is a push to kind of abolish it, and uh, and some university have have done it, but other resist it, and uh, and so it is somehow between a senior lecturer and a chair, a full professor. Right. So it's a kind of uh, in some university it's an associate professor, but it's a, it's it's. It's a bit of push. I mean, it's a senior role. Almost, a, it's it's translate. I mean, you can translate it as like this guy is almost a professor. <laughs> I will be almost a you know, I will be a professor, and I will clarify this. It, 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 the the problem that reader entails is with um, equivalence, like with other uh, university context, because in in Italy, for example, it is equated to a full professor. You know. And uh, whereas in Spain I'm a professor titular, for example, I'm not I'm not a catedratico yet. I'm 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 on, I'm on the edge. But you know I, I like the I like the title. You know I read uh, uh, the reader. You know it's not lecturing. It's like the reader. Finally, Ooh, to me, if only I would have time to read. I, I ask myself. You know, it, to me it conjures up. You're sitting with Andrea Camilleri, looking out uh, at the sea, and sharing a cocktail. And then while he goes inside and coughs, you go and swim in the beautiful waters. How does that sound? <laughs> that's a nice analogy. No, that's uh, no, that's that's nice. I love Camilleri. Yeah, and, uh, <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. So yeah, that's what 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 reader is. Right, reader means. So Prof, um, and maybe we can invoke the spirit of Camilleri, whom I of course read in English as a wonderful novelist, but who's also an important or was an important progressive columnist with wonderful views on everything from migration to the political economy. 
So maybe you could conjure up some of the spirit of Camilleri in answer to this first and really only set question, which is to share with us, if you would, what the things are that are dynamizing you, troubling you, preoccupying you, interesting you right now. And the answer might be geopolitical, environmental, occupational, familial. Over to you. Well, I... Some, some, as you know, some personally, some research and some kind of in the intersection between the two, as usual, you know, it happens with us, some of us critical scholars. Uh, lately, and uh, I've been really interested in uh, in the social impact and the political impact of algorithms. And uh, uh, two weeks ago, I launched and I published an open access book with my dear friend Tiziano Bonini from the University of Siena that is called Algorithms of Resistance, uh, the everyday fight against platform power. And uh, this is a book that we've been working on for like five years. Uh, and of course, across all the messy pandemic times, distant times, sometimes kind of sharing space in Italy on the hills, Tuscan hills where close to where he lives and close to where I was born uh, to kind of write some of the books, but mostly from Cardiff and him in Florence and then meeting at events and stuff mm. and doing research uh, globally because it's a book based on uh, on global research with the research assistant part of the team in India, Mexico, Spain, Ma uh, uh, China, uh, and, and the UK and Italy. So it's really kind of a continuation of something that I started when I was professor in Mexico, like what do algorithms do to us uh, and uh, at the political, cultural and, 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 and social level? The, the, the answer, I mean, it's multifaceted, of course. And it was like when I met Tiziano in Siena, was, was uh, I mean, invited me over to give a talk. Uh, five years ago, and I, and I was like, of course. I mean, who, who, who says who says no to go to Siena? I think it was spring. I mean, it was what a beautiful town. I mean, full of history and uh, and uh, and Tuscany. And uh, we were, we got to talk, and we saw that Tiziano was doing in 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 kind of um, cultural analysis, cultural studies, what I was doing for po for pol for kind of political. Analysis. He was uh, analyzing how Spotify is changing a bit the game with recommendation system. How people are coping with that? What what are what are the implication of this change? Where algorithmic systems are pervasive, they are everywhere, they are affecting our life. And uh, I was doing the same for politics, and so we joined forces. We we really joined forces. It's like okay, we're doing this, we're doing politics, we're doing culture, and the third realm it's going to be work because gig work has been so massively influenced by the algorithms that govern our life and especially precarious workers. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that's what has been really kind of interesting, something that has been always fascinated me. But at the same time, I think our aim was to show that uh, this is really, and, uh, and, and, I'm, and I love to be in the cultural studies podcast because of that, this is really something for the everyday. I mean, algorithms are not, uh, if they ever was, something that is over there, like 
in a kind of uh, strange place occupying uh, this kind of other space. No, they are very much ingrained into our everyday life. They are already here. They are mundane. Mm. They're banal. And uh, we engage with them. We are all we are already developed so many strategies, so many tactics to counteract them, to 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 live with them, really. And this is what the book is about. How do we live? How do we engage? And how do we resist them in in so many ways, in so many different social domains of of our life? You know. And it is a terrific book. I'm lucky to be one of the people who's already downloaded it and obviously we'll make sure that there's a a link to enable people to follow up on that one of the things i wanted to ask you about is the question of why this does or doesn't matter to people let me just tell a story for a moment if i may emiliano so 10 years ago when i was bleating on to us students about algorithms and in general private sector corporate surveillance of their lives they said they didn't care all that mattered to them was state surveillance this was what worried them nowadays over the last uh, five uh, last uh, six years i've been teaching in britain colombia mexico united states and now spain and all the students, and they come from very different social classes in those different places, all of them are worried about the implications not only of being led to things, but also of having their data reused, sold. There, It's not just their attention span that's being sold, it's their identity. So I'm interested in whether or not you have seen in your multinational research any sort of increased media coverage, political intervention, social movement agitation about the algorithm, not not just as something to know people, but to sell about people, something of their lives to sell. Mm-hmm. Well, that's an interesting reflection and also to kind of showing uh, over time how maybe this kind of worry is or, or the tendency. I, 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 it's It's interesting to see. I think there is increasing uh, uh, preoccupation about it. Uh, it's uh, it's something that we scholars, we have a responsibility about because we need to somehow translate what it could be some kind of uh, weird jargon sometimes that doesn't resonate with people, uh, uh, with most people. So we try to do a book, first of all, that, you know, that is open to, so people can download and read, but also that as a language that, is is a bit more uh, easier to get. Uh-huh. And yeah. I think that people should care because even if you don't care, these things are part of your life. So that's the first thing. It's, yeah. it's just, uh, and I think it's a point that we also make in other book. I mean, two years ago, we released with uh, with Lina, with Arne, with Joanna, the data justice book, which is the kind of the culmination of the work of the data justice lab. And it is, uh, data justice is not, also, we, we argued that data justice is not just a matter of uh, experts in the data stu- critical data studies that maybe some people are like, what, what is going on? What are you talking about? What is critical data studies? Why should it matter? No, I mean, it's a paradigmatic shift for society, whether you like it or not. Mm. 
And I'm not talking about inevitability of this change. Knowing how things are happening maybe is helping you to actually shape a different kind of future. But algorithms are everywhere. Whether if you're interested in, in sending your kid to school, you got to face these algorithmic systems and the choice to go to university for yourself are, are um, kind of filtered through this algorithmic system. Your musical taste and choices are filtered through this algorithmic system. The welfare state or the absence of, uh, of, of the welfare state are filtered through the algorithmic system. Hospital care and whatever, it's algorithmic system. So uh, gig work is basically, you know, your boss in a, is an algorithm, as there was this book, I think it was another Italian author, Aloisi, uh, your boss is an algorithm. Yeah, it, it is. So uh, um, it is everywhere, you know, almost as colonized every. And so we show how people are not just unaware of this. They are already reacting about this. And the, where, and the, the, the Foucault adagio is that where, is, where, where there is algorithmic power, there is algorithmic resistance. That That's the point, you know. And thanks that, that there is this kind of reaction in a kind of more banal everyday acts of uh, right. of resistance, you know. Well, when in the old days when I lived in New York and LA, and I got a lot of phone calls just as an ordinary person from people doing surveys for advertising agencies, asking my views of a jingle that would uh, promote a particular brand. Or when I lived in New York, you'd be walking down the street, a person would approach you with a small device with a trailer for a film that was about to be released saying, what do you think about this trailer? Does this make you want to go? My answer to these people, and this is the, the evil of political economy on the march, was, are you getting paid to ask me these questions? Uh, and who's paying you? And how much will they pay me if I answer you? And of course, this led to a massive Pacific cultural revolution worldwide that hasn't yet had its full effects experienced. But It'll take time. It'll happen. But prof or reader, <laughs> a question. In terms of the anxiety that you're saying is probably emergent, is that something that could be shared or would be shared on by Bernie Sanders or Jeremy Corbyn on the one hand and by Giorgio Meloni on the other? Oof. Well, that's an interesting question and also interesting experience that you had on the street with the trailer and everything. I mean, it shows that basically there are so many continuities. We media scholars are always looking for the disruptions, but there are so <laughs> many continuities, aren't they? Uh, well, I don't know. I mean, in terms of um, politically, I, I think there is a, a, there's something in the book that we call the difference between, of, of course, you can, and, and here we are inspired by the world, for example, my friend Stefani Milan is like, uh, you can use algorithm as a repertoire, and this is the classical repertoire of social movements to fight, you know, uh, you include them in your repertoire alongside other strategies or tactics, you want to call it, uh, and you can use them, uh, you can fight them against them as stakes. When you fight a kind of a facial recognition campaign, uh, kind of, uh, or something like that, there, are, there is, or uh, civil society is actually fighting against this and winning some of these battles, you know, surveillance you were mentioning and some of this. Um, in migration studies, there's a lot of focus now in how, you know, of course, techno-capitalism 
is uh, surveying mi migrants and how they're fighting back also through civil society organization. In terms of, uh, you know, who could be aligned to this fight, I see, you know, Bernie Sanders could be somebody that uh, that is 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 on it in in, in many i think he, he is actually doing stuff i think you know bernie is is, is doing a great job but for first you know maybe ocasio cortez and people are like more energy yeah with all due respect for the for the other but you know they 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 are they have been there for so long that you know it's 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 hard to see, but uh, they are doing a great job in kind of uh, uh, unmasking AI. It's a new book by what is the the great MIT researcher um, uh, about that actually was a pioneer of this technology. So these the fight is fought uh, both as including you know algorithm as part of the repertoire of social movements to kind of gain them and try as much as possible and 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 mobilize and protest and spread information but at the same time as traditional kind of protest against these uh, data and uh, ai systems now you mentioned meloni i don't know i mean um <laughs> how much is has been down in italy in italy like recently i try to to stay away a bit and I try to stay close, but at the same time away from my own mental uh, safety, let's say from <laughs> what is going on in Italy. It's always been like that with Italian politics. I must say, you know, I'm probably yeah. Italian, but you know, uh, highly ambivalent regarding what's going on in my country. You know, when I was an undergrad, I studied uh, two major areas in Italy. One was the history of fascism and the other was uh, comparative political stability of Japan, West Germany, as it then was in Italy. And, you know, there was always this condescending attitude uh, to Italy. But um, moving away from that for a moment, Prof, you mentioned social movements a couple of times, and much of your work, uh, both on your own and with others, and it's wonderful that you collaborate with so many great people, some of whom you've mentioned, um, has been about social movements and the counterpower that you mentioned that can be utilized by social movements in digital spheres. That was something about which people were very optimistic 10 and 20 years ago. Do you feel optimistic about that now? Do you see real advances and possibilities? in terms of both organizational forms through the digital media, but also material long-term effects as a consequence of social movement organizing through the digital? Well, that's interesting. I say that, you know, I, I think I was just telling uh, this morning to, to students in social media politics, uh, the MA, about these uh, optimism and pessimism, these polarizing views uh, that media historian, they say they they they're like a roller coaster, you know. So we have <laughs> like enter, you know. If you look at the history of media in the last, uh, in terms of centuries, it's always great to have the long durée of this because otherwise we're like what the. Uh, we have entered the dark kind of period right now. So it's all about like uh, at least since Trump was elected, right? I mean, oh my God, you know these technologies can also be used to spread hate, propaganda, manipulation. Brexit and so on. Uh, 
I was never, I think, so incredibly optimistic about how the, I mean, I was, I was, I always tried. I mean, sometimes I was, <laughs> I was, I was a bit maybe. Uh, um, I tried, influenced by sci-fi, but I always was a bit ambivalent about it. So ambivalent in many ways. So I, I haven't, I haven't lost faith. I still think there are new ways that have been uh, uh, carried out right now to organize the, and to spread most of them are the traditional ways that are that are somehow being combined with digital technologies you know all, all my work has been especially the first part of my career has been about uh, uh, hybrid media activism what i call you know this interplay between the streets and, and and the squares on one side and digital environments now exactly this work at least in the many movements and countries where I, I have done research in Latin America, in, in, in Europe, especially. And uh, and I'm still, so I, I still got the faith. I've I, I always been both more like techno-realist in this way, <laughs> especially when it comes to change, because people tend to be incredibly polarizing about it. It's like, you know, but I haven't seen this change. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I know if you think that change is just, you know, uh, always have to be revolutionary change. You know, it's just like a complete, uh, 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 you know, change of whatever forms of government, distraction, you know, just like, which sometimes it's just, it's absolutely needed. This kind of, uh, 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 sh you know, shaking the foundation of power and whatever. But most of the time, change is gradual, is, is, is impure, is imperfect. And it's also cultural change, as, as you well know, more than me, is, is so incredibly hard to uh, assess. So whenever, when I was looking at Mexican movement and Yo Sociedad de Dos, the student movement, one of the, 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 the biggest impact that he has had is culturally in terms of changing the conversation about media power in Mexico, which is not something new, but people were saying it doesn't change the <laughs> dynamics of power in the country. I mean, can just a, a student social movement change the whole uh, asset of politics in, a, in the most, in the biggest country in the uh, uh, Spanish-speaking Spanish country in the world? Like... Uh, I don't know. I I wasn't. I didn't expect them. What I expect was, mm. you know, uh, uh, changes. But uh, this massive change, well, you know, not even Zapata. I mean, or you know, <laughs> what? Are, who, who's of course whose name I carry? But you know, it's uh, it's in, it's impossible to. So people, I think, you know, scholars also need to kind of nuance these changes. But and sometimes we also have to be absolutely honest. Like in, in in the case of the Ava Springs and many of this country, uh, we have seen actually not um, and the, the, there's been a lot of research about it, especially in like five years after that, ten years after uh, an evaluation of the situation, see you know uh, authoritative power in place and not a lot have changed politically, but. To say that there's no change at all, well, I think that's stretching it. Uh, and I think this is also important in terms of thinking about innovation, which is one of the key words used by the right, the centre-right and the centre-left in terms of economic development. And again here, I point to your invocation of media history. I'm thinking of, Fer and you mentioned the long durée, Fernand Brodel is incredible 
in explaining how technologies get adopted, not in terms of scientific development, but social relations. And of course, not with the same long durée. You get that point made by Raymond Williams and Brian Winston and, and many others. But I think that's tremendously important. And taking a balance between utopic and dystopic approaches and also being too media centric is easy for media scholars, thinking that this is all about either domination by the media or liberation by the digital media. When in fact, it can be much older social organizations like the Communist Party or a feminist social movement that's been going for years that really matters. But Prof, going back to your Soy 132, I am number 132, you're very unusual in being a scholar from the global north who didn't just, you know, go and study in Latin America as a place, which plenty of people do, right? You went to live and teach there for years. You made a real commitment to being there. And I wonder if you could talk to us a bit about that, because there are God knows how many communications, language, and anthropological and sociological scholars who go on six-month fieldwork trips to X place in the global south and pronounce on it for the rest of their lives. What was it like for you as a young Italian moving to Mexico? And what was it like being a professor in the university system there? Yeah, thanks for the question. First of all, I have to say that Italy is very good at educating people and uh, the system allowed me to study almost for free. Uh, and I have no depth whatsoever. Uh, and I had, you know, I studied with, with with some of the best, the Umberto Eco's faculty. I mean, we're talking about communication science, University of Bologna, the alma mater. But what Italy is not good at is retaining talent. Uh, it's uh, it's uh, it's uh, really bad at retaining talent. Uh, at least the condition that I had was were really. I, I want to be absolutely pragmatic about it because there's a there's a, some kind of romanticism like Trare went to Mexico because yeah also because it is also because uh, and you I need don't a job it right now but it's because I needed to pay the rent so yeah 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 uh, and uh, and I don't come I, I come from a from a working class family and. Um, right. And I always had my my resources because of the, especially because of the public system and because the I I, I had all that I wanted really but uh, you know I I I needed to work uh, this is I cannot afford not to work so that's that that's the main point and I have to tell this Italy is really bad at giving you this kind of academic work but it's great at forging talent at university in fact if you look at the statistic italian italian researchers are everywhere we are everywhere we we lead the research teams we win ERCs. we are uh, we are everywhere there's i, I don't think i don't think i ever talked to somebody in uk university where in the department where there is no italian i mean it's <laughs> we are everywhere. so that's the first thing so i needed the job uh, after my phd yeah and the second they were really incredibly uh, receptive about my ideas <clears throat> I had uh, I had been in Spain for a while, and I have uh, already worked in Spain in two thousand five for one uh, for for the first year, like for three years. I, I've always been fascinated by by 
I don't know, the Spanish culture, Spanish language, Ibero-American language and, and Latin America, it's always been, I don't yeah. know, something, something, something part of me. Uh, the story, the history, the, 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 the language, everything. And, um, and then I met, I was, in fact, I was working in the Institute for uh, Latin America and Africa in, uh, in 2005 already, be, be, before studying a PhD. Uh, but then uh, they offered me uh, to 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 forge and, and create a master in communication and culture at the University of Querétaro, and uh, it was you know it was fantastic because it was really I mean let's have your ideas let's come as a visiting professor and first and see what you think and they like I like the environment I like to collaborate with them it was a great experience and then. Well, they opened up a position and I was able to really stay there and uh, and to stay there for five years. And it was an incredible learning experience because uh, it was really breathing and living the Latin American communication scholarship, the, the culture, the tradition and becoming some. And I have to earn my keep. I have to become an expert in something and I could only speak as as somebody who knows that stuff after I think three years or so. You yeah. know, I do my due diligence work, and uh, and the only way to do this is speaking the language, being there, and uh, and trying to have grants for people who are I don't know, like in the system. In the, and and it was the public system, so for me, it's always been like an a mission, but in the good sense, you know, we yes. are working yeah. for this, you know, and and for me, it's always been uh, an Autonoma Universidad de Querétaro, Universidad uh, Autonoma de Querétaro, for me, it was, um, it was great. And there was a lot of vibrant stuff that I didn't find in Italy at that time, in 2011. It was incredible, how, how, you know, there were possibilities. Uh, th there is a lot of misconception regarding how much money or uh, possibilities we have sometimes in in I don't know in, in in the global north, which is an entity that is so you know multifaceted as well. And they say you know a lot of misconception. Uh, Mexico is a is a is a, is a world of power. I mean, it's not it's not some kind of peripheral kind of country. It has resources. It has possibility. It is incredibly unequal, but uh, uh, there are possibilities uh, to travel to to make a, a change uh, to 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 obtain grants for like more marginalized students to work and to thrive that people are, they they have no idea so i don't know i know that the situation has slightly changed in a way but it was incredibly vibrant incredibly supportive and of course i worked very very hard but uh, um, i'm really proud of that and I, you know for me it's um, it was the only way to actually uh, be able to be um, legitimately talking about uh, that country and that complexity to be there and to be absolutely uh, one. I mean, one of them, you know, I, I, I feel Mexican. One of a part of myself is you know, I'm Italian. I'm Spanish because, you know, for many reasons I've been uh, uh, with the um, my, my ex, I mean, for, for 13 years, he's Spanish. I got my, my son is Spanish, you know, but, uh, but I'm also Mexican. Uh, part of me is Mexican uh, and, and part of me is Welsh, you know, I, now I'm, I'm completely part of this. 
culture and uh, academic culture becomes part of you, but you have to own it. If you don't own it, it's just, you know, going for a tour of the global south, uh, not even speaking the language. That is ridiculous, you know. Having, <laughs> it's, just, it's just, you know, people staying 10 years there or going on holidays. They don't even say hola. And, and for me, this is the worst kind of imperialism, is not being able to fluently express yourself after having been in the south of Spain for 15 years. <laughs> it's just that is absolutely well, unbelievable. You there know? are so many British people in this country who regard themselves as British, but still live from a Spanish welfare state as well as the British welfare state because they re retired before Brexit and have never bothered to learn a word. So, and I think a lot of academics historically were like that. You know, the thing used to be in the 40s, 50s, 60s, you went to a town, you met the person who could speak your language, English or French, perhaps, and that was it. You didn't actually learn directly from anybody else. Those days have partly gone, but I'm still amazed, Emiliano, when I read articles and books that are about things like global this and international that, and they're either edited or co-edited or written or co-written by people who have one language and have only ever lived in the global north or some mixture of that. I just don't understand it. Anyway, that aside, I appreciate your frankness in sharing with us why you went. And I appreciate your admiration for Mexico. And I think it's worth pointing out to people, particularly in areas like science and agriculture, that this is a, a world power, as you say, you use the right expression. And it's also, in terms of things like medicine, if you're in the best of the system, absolutely in the top drawer, right? Absolutely in the top drawer. And, you know, I've experienced that. You're also in Querétaro, which is a fantastic place. I mean, amazing culture there, no? And... Incredible. Oh, incredible. And, uh, you know, Mexico, maybe because of my name, there was something, nomen <laughs> omen. Uh, I had to be there. I, I, I don't know about destiny, but... Uh, there is something calling me. Uh, you have to. You have to respond. Life is short. You have to respond to the calls, and 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 it always. Uh, I've been working. I'm writing a lot about data universalism and about uh, universalism in general in, in global media culture. Always strikes me that I have to justify why I'm doing research on Mexico, but you don't have to justify if you're only doing research on like I don't know Illinois or stuff. I mean, with all due respect to Illinois, no, or you know, Minnesota, you know, I'm not. I'm just making an example. What I'm saying that Mexico is a, a, a cultural, a, a cultural, you know, power in in for yes. it's a reference for all the world and for Latin America. I mean, we're talking about the biggest university in the public university in the world. I mean, UNAM is not. I mean, studying at UNAM you, it's free, by the way. And this is a big lesson, but you know, you 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 are in one of the places where you you know of culture, you know, where people look look to that and say, "Wow!" I mean, talking about production, yeah, medicine, talking about scientific knowledge, talking about movements. I mean, Mexico, you know, the Zapatistas, the 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 kind of indigenous. Um, uh, kind of vibrant milieu and uh, population and uh, and revolutions and things that have tried in that country. So 
you know, we, we have to be like that. But this is coming also from my own country. I remember, you know, kind of a comments of, from some Italian when I was there, like I was going to the some kind of a third world, uh, whereas, you know, first of all, you didn't give me a job, so you're losing me. Uh, uh, and yeah, you are, and I'm going to another country that is investing in me. And second, you have no idea. <laughs> you you, yeah, no. you absolutely I mean, have no what, idea, and you what? know that because you 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 know you're like you 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 have and you know you have traveled more than anyone, uh, Toby, and uh, and worked everywhere, you know, and so you are the But manifestation. Tell, tell me this, Emiliano: How many Italian universities have two volcanoes on the campus? <laughs> well, well, you'd be surprised. You'd be surprised. <laughs> no, volcanoes are not are not something that we we don't have in Italy. In fact, no, true. Uh, but two on campus. No, but two volcanoes is big. You know. In fact, <laughs> the, the same word volcano comes from volcano in Italy. You know. It's right. Just, right. Uh, but uh, we have volcanoes, but we don't have that. that and of course, I mean, um, I think that people who love their country are the most uh, the harshest critique. Of the system, I I don't I never criticize something that I don't know. I criticize stuff that I know very much yeah. in depth. But yeah, the volcanoes are also part of the fascination. Yeah. <laughs> Getting back to to the data material, what called you to data? Because you're running this center, you've published a lot on it, you've engaged in numerous research projects with people. What is the data call to you? Yeah, interesting. Uh, looking at it, I, I think uh, the first answer is more like research based. So I follow. I follow it. I always say that algorithms found me. I wasn't looking for them. You know, I studied. I said, "Yo soy 132. I am 132." But uh, when I began to study them, I recognized that. Uh, in kind of uh, parties and other like really kind of less clear, clearly defined institution in Mexico were already using bots from 2009, 2010 to manipulate and orchestrate public opinion. So Mexico has been a laboratory also in the kind of dark politics sense. Mm -hmm. So I found them online and I found them, you know, much earlier than people looking at Trump, for example. Trump was like, later on, he was at the center stage because he was in the United States, of course, but I found them. So that led me to look at algorithmic resistance, what I called algorithmic resistance, and and then to datafied environments and, and then to Cardiff, of course, and, so, and, and to collaborate with such great people in the data justice lab. But another, but another thing I have, to, and, and I love to be, you know, in this kind of podcast, especially a pragmatist, and it is that you also follow things that are in the radar that are <laughs> that are cool, right? I mean, this is academia. Uh, a part <laughs> of it is interest. A part of that is that you have to you have to be, you know, in the radar. You have to be somebody who's 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 doing research that is actually. Well, I say selling, but it's also interesting. This is what is going on in the world, but at the same time, yeah, I mean, I'm an. I have to kind of always be updated to change and to look for patterns that really are resonating with with people. With uh, with and and so coming back to you know, I gotta pay the rent kind of thing. But there's also a kind of a really pragmatic take. This is what really is. Uh, 
going, and especially now AI and algorithms. So I think that is important. It's out there. And at the same time, it seems that, um, yeah, we can really, you know, be interested and get some money to research this thing and uh, and be and be and be what to say like um, palate pal palatable uh anyway in many <laughs> no i get it i mean and i appreciate the need for scholarly pragmatism and as somebody who every year spends much of the year trying to find work i understand <laughs> i get it uh but my query is this or my concern is this prof Lots and lots of journalism schools, for example, now have data journalism as a big part of what they do, and lots of jobs appearing in the domains of communications and media studies and sociological studies of the media emphasize artificial intelligence, algorithms, and data. Uh, those are good things to know about, but my anxiety is that the means of knowing them exclude established forms of thought, theories and methods that have been used for a hundred years, and they exclude history. So people like Brodell or Williams, whom we were talking about earlier, are not on the radar. Political economy, media ethnography, not on the radar. So that's, that's one thing that worries me. The other thing that worries me is that in journalism studies itself, and I'm thinking here more of the teaching of students, they're not learning other languages and they're not learning going out on the street and finding things out and interviewing people. Because as you know, one of the things that's happened in many parts of the world is a decline of local journalism. And the decline in local journalism has accompanied a diminished esteem for journalists in general. And I wonder if some of that is to do with what Jim Carey would have suggested, which is that if when you go to Little League or, uh, you know, Lazio versus Roma or the church and you see a journalist whom you know wandering about as another parent or as another believer or another fan, that helps journalism to be not something that is just in big cities and powerful media organizations, but actually something to do with your own sense of citizenship. So there's a little provocation. I wondered if, if first you might comment on my anxiety about the focus on the things that you're focusing on, which I support, by the way, but I have an anxiety about it. And secondly, this issue of what is happening when we remove the ethnographic part of journalism and the linguistic part. Wow. You know, I, I, first of all, let me let me... Let me say that I share this preoccupation of yours, and I try to somehow alleviate it. Let's say in my in, in the ways that I possibly can. So the first way is like I teach a lot. I, I try to uh, incorporate as much as I can media history and and patterns of the past and stuff. In fact, you know. Uh, I'm writing a book in Italian right now with my dear friend Simone Natale from university, who is a media historian, by the way. So uh, my first book in Italian, yeah, finally, uh, <laughs> in my own language, uh, which is proving hard to, to write because, you know, when you have all these, uh, uh, you know, lingua franca of English, is <clears throat> it's proven to be an experiment, basically, <laughs> of re return to my own language. 
but you know, leaving that aside, it, you know, I'm trying to to have a lot of media history in it to show patterns of the past, but also a lot of theoretical conceptual work, which I think it's incredibly it's becoming thinner and thinner in modern universities. It's like <clears throat> like concepts are some kind of not uh, th- th- like they're not useful. And for me, theory was always originating from the empirical world. Is how you explain the world. It's not. It's not some kind of uh, uh, jargon that we what we use between us to say I'm important. Uh, I'm intelligent. I know. I know how to speak difficult words. No, no. It's it's ways of uh, calling things that happen in the world and to name them in order to critically unbox uh, uh, and and to. Cr- to really, really assess their potential, their challenges, their misgivings, their drawbacks, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So there are ways to tackle this newness of AI algorithm and data mm. in a, in, a, in a proper way for me. But uh, you know, in the neoliberal university, sometimes this is done without uh, uh, attention to these dynamics from the past and following a lot of presentism that, as you were pointing uh, out, is really strong in media studies and journalism studies, always been. So to counter that, and and this leads me to the second reflection on journalism. As an ethnographer myself, I cannot, uh, besides, I cannot understand any kind of teaching of, 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 of understanding of the world, which is not based in kind of uh, uh, research-based in many ways. So my teaching is so deeply linked to my experience as a researcher in multinational context, in multi-sided ethnographies, that I don't know if I would be able to teach without it. I I, I think, you know, I'm completely... uh, It's... it's, They are so intimately connected that it's impossible to think one without the other. My, 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 the fact that you know I'm able to go there and to and to have all these interfaces with different cultures and languages is part and of my, of, of both my research and teaching uh, deeply. So the, and this is something that we can give that AI cannot give as as teacher as uh, as um, you know uh, pedagogos. Uh, this is what we can give. This is the strength. You know the 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 in Freudian terms the uh, something that can cannot be be taught by by something that, that, that some kind of entity that only uh, talk about uh, uh, contents and delivery uh, and, I, and I'm also afraid that this is uh, uh, this is being lost somehow but it can be done in a way but it needs to be and uh, you you were mentioning a lot of scholars I really the historians that I deeply respect. I could also say, um, I don't know, uh, Vincent Mosco recently passed. I mean, we 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 lost Vinny. I mean, uh, what an incredible mind! I mean, I'm using his uh, the Digital Sublime for me is one of the best books. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, period uh, that has been written on political yeah. economy and culture about yeah. and and just because he links the myth, the myth and the power of myth to the the contemporary society, the digital society is that looking at the past to understand the present. But I also I can also talk about Innis. I mean, of the Toronto school, McLuhan is always evoked. And I like McLuhan. I mean, there are so many 
No, it's okay. But inspiration loves, of, okay, but Ines has got this incredible yeah. story. Yeah. It's so yeah. thick, so, yeah. so incredibly layered and informed yeah. by, 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 by history. And, and, and the, uh, so, yeah, uh, maybe, maybe the bottom line is that we got, we got to go back to history to understand this. And why is history always so neglected? This is just, especially communication and media history is always, and, and so with Simone, we're trying to look exactly at that, you know, uh, the tendency that we see with the, uh, with contemporary data and friction and algorithmic system and, and, connect, and connectivity media is uh, somehow, we look at feuilleton and, uh, and that kind of strategies to capture the reader and we say, what? What is actually different? Yeah, okay, you got algorithmic media, but you also got the same kind of hooks, cliffhangers and stuff that we used to do. But yeah, history has been so... And, and I need to learn more and more of this because I feel that myself as well, I'm really ignorant in, in the... In, 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 we have ourselves, we have a, a responsibility uh, with, 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 with the students and with what we research, not to do the same mistakes again, you know, as well. I was fortunate enough, uh, literally four weeks to the day before he died, to record a conversation with Vincent Mosca for the series. And it was a wonderful experience. You know, he and I have been friends for over 25 years, although rarely in contact. You know, that kind of friendship, as we have, where you don't see the person very often, but as soon as you do, you feel happy and you have a nice chat and it's good. Um, prof or reader... <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to ask you one more question, if I may, and then throw things over to you to add or subtract anything from what we've discussed. There may be things that we haven't touched on that you'd like to refer to. There may be things in what we've chatted about you'd like to go back to. But my my question is this, and in a way you've already explained a lot of it with your emphasis on political economy, on history, on ethnography, but... There's a knock on your door uh, in Cardiff, your office uh, at the university, and a young person comes in and says, hello, uh, Professor Trere, I have just finished my undergraduate degree in communications or history or sociology, and I would like to study big data and social movements. How do I go about it? I would like to do a doctorate on this. How would I, how do I start? Well, good question. First of all, let's have a coffee and talk about it. Uh, <laughs> Very Italian. I'm, I'm, I'm well, Italian-wise, let's have an espresso. Let's find a place, <laughs> uh, uh, which is not, it was not easy uh, to have a decent one. But um, I think there are many components to this. The first, I'm always really pragmatic, like, Let's look at the opportunities that there are there for studying a PhD. And uh, especially uh, if you are, I mean, are you self-funded or not? I'm, I'm really political economy first in this thing. Because people are like, I want to do this and that. Yeah, what are the dates? Uh, when these deadlines comes, I'm always being like that. You know, when, once you have the architecture, when we can talk about content. But it's like... Uh, Let's talk about, are you self-funded or not? There are opportunities and we can look at them, but you need to work hard to get them. And these are the possibilities. 
then I will say big data and social movements is as big as studying the internet right now. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it's like once in the day, like I'm so interested to, to know about your idea about the digital society. I'm like, yeah, man, I mean, uh, we need to be a bit more narrow and specific because this is what we are in academia. So an angle is what you need. Uh, sometimes it's just, uh, let's think, I always you know, motivate them to think about something concrete in the world. Uh, yep. Are you motivated because you, you you can think about a case study? Are you motivated because, I don't know, like people come and, I mean, there is this kind of case in Vietnam that I'm looking at, it's like fantastic. I mean, what does this case tell you? It tells you about this, this and that. Okay, maybe we can have a PhD about it. But uh, whenever it's too generic and it's this idea... It, 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 for me, it's really problematic. So I would say, have a thought about how you can make this specific because the word of academia, whether you like it or not, it's all about carving your own niche in a way and being and making yourself absolutely indispensable in what you do. Um, and this is for a lot of reasons, because we are too many doing to publish or perish, vomiting papers like there's no tomorrow, especially. I'm sorry for early career researchers that have to do that systematically. It's a crazy world. I'm not, I'm not, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think it's just, a, a you know, a, it's, it's all negative. There's a lot of positives. But when you think about an idea for research, you need to have an edge. You need to have something original. And you need to think about the contribution that you might which you might give to that. And uh, if you have the architecture of what, you know, let's think about the possibilities and let's map them on one side and on the other, an edge, an originality, and maybe a big case study or a couple of them, then we can talk about this. And I'm happy to, to you know, I'm, I'm part, part of the greatness of, of our job, I think, is to supervise... Uh, people and, and to kind of help them to become their own independent researcher and to have, and this is something that is really hard and difficult. It's a constant negotiation. But if without these two ingredients, uh, you know, knowing the field and uh, and having a good idea, um, and, uh, and of course this requires a knowledge of what is out there. A constant curiosity of reading and knowing and reading and knowing. And, uh, but you know, you got that epiphany. It's like, yeah, maybe I can do something about that, and uh, and and of course, you know, that's that's the old point. But I also tell them about the the pros and cons of the of the craft because this is no uh, this is no walk in the park. You know, it's just, um, but it's the only work I can do. I mean, I, I I'm not good in in doing some great work manually. You know, besides playing guitars and a couple of other instruments, so. Um, all that I can do is use my my brain, you know. It's just um, I'm I'm forced to do it, you know. <laughs> not not because it's just that's the only thing, you know. It's I th I love it, but uh, I don't I, I I don't see myself doing a lot of other. Uh, uh, you know, I I couldn't. I mean, I don't have that uh, uh, that skills that uh, I envy people with those skills, you know. But uh, I'm not able to, uh, so. This is what I do. <laughs> Prof. Emiliano, to finish, as I said, I'd like to hand things over to you 
and ask you whether there are things whether there are things you'd like to add to what we've discussed or new topics that you want to complete our conversation with. You know, I, mean, I think it was a, an, an amazing conversation. So a lot was covered. And um, uh, I think, you know, to mention a thing that uh, maybe a topic that I've been working on with this new kind of emerging area of, uh, of, of research is, I think that is fascination to look at it is digital disconnection, which is somehow something that uh, originates from the global north of people who are overly connected that somehow look at how people voluntarily wants to disconnect. And in my work, uh, also I'm working with, the, uh, with the, uh, a PhD of mine, Reza Bolton, who is a Turkish uh, PhD, who has, uh, was doing this research on um, many facets of digital disconnection, including rural areas of Turkey, where we try to combine digital disconnection on one side and digital inequalities on the other. So, Right now, we can face uh, uh, the problem of connecting in some ca in some cases, so not having the infrastructure, but this overlaps and kind of combines with the problem of being too connected and, and being incredibly pushed to be all the time scrolling and, of course, all these toxic kind of dynamics. So I think that the overlap or the merging, whatever you want to call it, and we have a paper with Vasil, it's called when, digit, when uh, digital disconnection meets digital inequalities in convergence, so I go open access, and uh, and of course Basil is is writing more on it. Uh, it's I think it's a fascinating area, which you know kind of complements research being done on digital divides from the south and push to disconnect from a kind of more privileged kind of context. The intersection of both for me is really promising. And um, and this is something that I'm digging into because uh, part of the part of our job is also to look for areas that are fascinating for us. And I think yeah, one of the pros of this job is at least in some university we are allowed to do so, and we can go in direction. So I wouldn't work for a place that doesn't allow me to to explore uh, uh, you know this kind of new direction, uh, which for me are completely fascinating and. And, and and I guess, you know, looking at new new areas, I've been doing research in China, thanks to my uh, former PhD, now lecturer in Exeter, Zi Zhang Yu, and uh, it allowed me this look into China, because I don't speak the language, but it's fluent, so we were like looking at this, and now looking at Turkey for me is also, this is the reason why I'm doing this, I couldn't work in the same context for all my life i need to i need to look this and i really uh, encourage a researcher to do that you know just go out of your comfort zones uh, linguistically uh, research wise empirically because it's the only way to learn something otherwise we just i, I don't know why we are doing this uh, really uh, i don't know it's just you know beautifully put and i like the idea of the disconnection because it relates to slow food, an Italian invention, slow television, slow journalism, and so on. And also to all kinds of no Benjaminian notions, Benjaminian notions from 80, 90 years ago. So I think there's a lot to that. And I appreciate your sharing with us these emergent fields in which you're participating. It was wonderful chatting to you, Prof. And I greatly thank you for being with us today.
No, I thank you, Toby, and you know, hope to seeing you soon. You know, always a pleasure, and uh, keep on doing what you do, and especially these conversations that are like. They're amazing. They're one good, great use of podcasts that I can find. And, uh, you know, I've learned a lot from those. So keep on doing that and see you soon. Well, everywhere, you know, as always, you know. <laughs> Thank you, my friend. See you soon. Thank you. My